This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy. But you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, January 19th, the Sad Laura Ashley Bot Mitzvah Dress Edition. I'm Gabriel Roth, I'm an editor at Slate, and the dad of Eliza, age six, and Leo, who's two and a half. Allison Benedict is out this week. I'm here with a special guest. I'm Lizzie Skernick, the mother of Javier, who's three years old. On today's show, I'll be talking to Lizzie about her own unconventional family and about an unusual family get-together that took place at her home this past weekend. Uh, and then we'll talk to author Devorah Heitner about rules for social media, not the ones that we impose on our kids, but the ones kids impose on one another. Also, there will be parenting triumphs and fails, recommendations, and we'll hear from a listener who wants to know whether to take her daughter to the Women's March in Washington this weekend. Uh, and then in our Slate Plus segment, we will get to hear from Allison Benedict, uh, who will drop by to tell us about a particularly excruciating parenting fail. If you want to hear about that, if you want to support our show, if you want to get more of this podcast and your other favorite podcasts every week, uh, you can sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash plus. Join today. Uh, and if you want to hear more from Allison, you can find out on our Facebook page. I'm going to make her post an update on that page to tell everyone what's up with her. Uh, and, and you will be able to see that update. That page is at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. And while you're there, you can post a snide comment about my vocal fry. That page for you again, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Okay. Triumphs. And obviously fails. Lizzie? So my fail is very tragic because it was entirely avoidable and I'm the one who instigated it. So um, Javier and I, my son Javier and I, like to read the nutshell libraries. And in one of the alphabet books from this series, there's a picture of a little baby diving into a box. Sorry, and these are the little books by Maurice Sendak, is that right? No, they're not all, but this one is by Hillary Knight. Okay. Okay. And so there's a little, it's O, and there's a little picture of a little baby in a diaper diving into the box of a book, and it's for opening. 
And Javier just thinks that's hilarious. And every time we get to that page, he points to it and he says, what is that? And the first few times I said, that's a little baby's bottom. But since bottom is just a word I've never used myself, after that, I started saying the word I would have used, which is, that's a little baby's butt. And then I started singing it and saying, that's a little baby's butt, which Javier then thought was extremely funny. And so ever since then, uh, he's taken, very unsurprisingly, to adding butt to everything. So if we start counting uh, above 20, I'll say, that's 21, and I'll say, 20 butt. <laughs> if I say 22, he'll say 20 butt. And he now walks around the house singing, I'm picking up my baby bumble butt. Um, and I also find this hilarious. Uh, but the problem is, next year, Javier goes to pre-K in Jersey City. And the pre-Ks in Jersey City are sort of old school in a disciplinary sense. And so he's not going to be able to walk around saying, but. And so now I'm worried I've set up my child for this system of punishment that's going to occur every day. And he's going to have these emotional issues with school. And I'm going to have to tell the teacher that I taught him but. And she's going to look at me like I'm a crazy person. It's like you've trained him <laughs> to commit a crime. I really And have. then thrown him into a sort of punitive enterprise in which he will be penalized. For. I really, really have. How long before he starts the pre-K? You know, September. And I just really don't see this going away. He's 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 really sticking with this program. If my experience is anything to go by, it will be really, really funny, and then one day it'll just disappear, and then at, at some point you will realize that you haven't heard him say but for three weeks. But then I, my fear then is that I will have taught him something else unacceptable. Uh, also a possibility. Um, <laughs> All right. Um, that's a good fail. Um, I have a triumph this week. I don't usually have triumphs because I, 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 it's harder to frame the stories of triumphs. But uh, I have a triumph. Um, and it's not a, it's not a single individual moment of triumph. It's a marathon triumph rather than a sprint triumph. My wife went on vacation for four days uh, last week. This is um, the first time either of us has gone away for that long since we've had two children. Uh, and she went away with some friends and, and we talked about it and we agreed that it was a great thing for her to do and I'll be doing some traveling in the spring and like, great, she should go away and, and have a wonderful time and recuperate and come back feeling like she's ready to hit, you know get back to it. Um, and so I was, uh, you know, alone with the kids for four days. This probably seems like nothing to you as a single parent. But I know. But I, bear, in, bear in mind that there <laughs> are two of them. Bear in mind that I'm outnumbered at this point. Uh, and and I, she left on Sunday morning, and I was not worried about Sunday because, you know, I have stuff to do to entertain them. We went to the park, and we hung out and played games, and there's stuff to do. And then I have to, like, do laundry and get food on the table. And, like, that's all fine. I can do all of that. Dads are used to Sundays. Yeah. Sunday. Right. Sunday. That's my day. Um, what I was worried about was the mornings because we had three school mornings. And, and like most parents, I think, especially with multiple kids um, to take to school, we have a morning like we have a routine and we have it really down. And the two of us, my wife and I, like we really work together like a well-oiled machine at this point. I'm in charge of food. So I'm making two breakfasts, putting them on for, in front of them. I'm making two lunches. I'm packing them up properly. I'm, I'm accommodating all of the dietary requests and restrictions. Um, 
And then I'm usually taking them both to school. They go to different schools close to one another, about a 10-minute bus ride away. And my wife is in charge of dressing and grooming. And so she's sort of, after I've fed the children, she's setting them all up and dressing them and presenting me as I'm walking up the door with two kids who were dressed and had their hair and their teeth have been taken care of and they've got their coats and they've got their mittens. And crucially, like they have backpacks with all of the things that they need on a given day. You uh, set a really high standard. I like- mean, <laughs> if, if, if you don't, then it just degenerates into like a shouting match because we have to leave and catch the bus and get to school and I need to get to work. And otherwise, the whole thing falls apart if we don't like really have this working. And so for th- three days, I knew this was going to be me doing both parts. I was going to be Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. You know what I mean? And and some of it is stuff that I can do. Like I can basically like pick an outfit for, for, for the younger one who needs an outfit picked for him. Um, and I can sort of remember what needs to go in the backpack on what day. Like I had it all written down at a particular point. But just the amount of stuff and the time in between waking up and having to leave the house is not enough for one person like to do all of the stuff. You need two people operating in parallel basically. Uh, and I said at the beginning to myself, I committed. I am going to do this and I'm going to do it without it becoming a catastrophe. And, and the kids are not going to experience this as like mom goes away and dad yells at us all morning. Like that. It's not what it's going to be. And that was not what it was. And it, it the way I did it was I got up super early because the younger one wakes up early. And so I got up at like quarter to six every morning and I started work right at that moment. I wasn't like, oh, now we chill on the couch for like an hour before I start making their breakfast. Now that is so not early, by the way. Snuggle and have a... a <laughs> Quarter to six. You can <laughs> you you, you can do much earlier than five forty-five. I can't really do that. I can't do earlier than that. But quarter to six quarter is not six. super early. But so, so. all right. Excuse me for overstating. <laughs> uh, but so I I I want like. Starting at a quarter to six, I was putting something in another thing. I was spreading something on something. I was putting a thing on a child. I was brushing something of a child. I was like making, checking a list to see what should go in the thing. And then, of course, this was when it began to snow. And so we had an extra batch of paraphernalia. There were the gloves and the mittens and the, the hats and the scarves and the snow pants for the little one and the special boots. And then if they're wearing the special boots, they have to have the shoes in the backpack. And I, I like, I wasn't sure that I could do this, but I did it. And I I feel I do feel as though I succeeded at like a, some fairly high level logistical parenting, and so I'm going to count that as a triumph. That when you add that snow in, that's snow, a huge right? triumph. Snow, huge. Sure. Wait, but I have a question. You didn't do anything the night before because that's the super key is just it, set it all up the night before. I can't do it. That's my time. Oh, can't do it. Well, see, I, if, then if, you're going to suffer. If I'm doing it, the, if I'm doing it the <laughs> night before, I have no life. I can't. <laughs> I know. I hear you. I used to make the lunches before. It just it was too ugh, too depressing. Yeah. Um, but it's a fair point. All right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. For our first topic, uh, I'm going to talk to Lizzie a little bit about her slightly unusual family. Why don't you just tell us 
a little bit about Javi and you and how it all works. Well, so I had Javi, my sperm donor, um, and I'm a single mom. And I also have a relationship with the other mothers that the donor, uh, that use the donor. And we all hang out and we have the kids get to know one another. And so it's funny because you say it's unusual and it seems so normal to me. But I know, obviously, it must seem bizarre to anybody who's in a nuclear family. It doesn't seem bizarre, but it does seem very modern. <laughs> How? Okay, so I'm I'm going to ask you some about the logistics of this arrangement, if you yeah, don't mind. Sure. Where? Where? How did you find the donor? Well, you buy sperm online nowadays. Generally, um, you know, you don't use a living specimen if you can help it. And so, when I decided to have a baby online, I went to California Cryobank, which is the biggest uh, sperm donor emporium that they have available. And you really just start looking through all the donors, like you're shopping on J. Crew. And the first, you know, they have delimiters, and the first one is height. And the second one is hair color and eye color. And then as you go down, it gets into like they're an engineer for a living, their religion. And so as I was doing it, um, I sort of started to realize what was important to me about each donor. And so the donor I chose was a biracial donor. I wanted a scientist because I'm an artist and I wanted him to be able to get some math genes if that was possible. And um, he's open, which means Javier can contact him later. Um, And so after going through all the donors, finally, um, once I was ready to actually do it, I clicked on the link, and I bought six months' worth of sperm, which was about $4,000. And then I brought it to my doctor. And, you know, she, it actually wasn't even a doctor, it was a physician's assistant. And she put it up, you know, in about two minutes. And after the second time, it took. So that's how I got him. And what made you decide to go that route? Well, you know, it's bizarre. Uh, I was watching a documentary in my parents' bedroom when I was very young. I must have been 11 or 12. And it was about single mothers. And it was at a time when single mothers were sort of still a thing, you know, that you might do a documentary about. And all the mothers actually had a hard time with the judgments leveled at them. And and I remember one of the mothers who was black and I'm black um, saying at one point, you know, well, you know, if I have to do something, you know, I'm just going to strap the baby on and we're just going to have to go out and do it ourselves. And I thought, I'm going to be a single mother. Uh, so it was very odd. It's like the way people realize they're going to be firemen. Or <laughs> How old were you? I think I could not have been older than 12. It wasn't even a time when I was particularly thinking about being a mother. Uh, but it was just a very early thing I understood about myself and I have no idea why but I guess it's the same way some people think you know uh, I want to marry a doctor I thought I want to be a single mother not even I want to be a single mother I am going to be a single mother and and what did your family and the people around you say when you told them that that was what you were doing well my family was a little taken aback I have to say my father got very concerned And he said, you know how hard it is to have a baby, right? And I was like, yeah. You know, and at the time I was 39. I said, yes, I know how hard it is to have a baby. And my mother was very uncomfortable with it. 
I think my brother and sister-in-law are very liberal, but in some ways very conservative. They, they were, everybody thought I was a loon. But on Facebook, Javier was incredibly popular in utero. And the minute I announced that I was pregnant on Facebook, I got a present every day. Somebody sent him a present. Um, and I just would get used to the UPS thing being thrown in a thump. And someone would have sent me pickles or, you know, poppy seed lemon cupcakes if I'd mentioned that I was having a craving. And so that was so fascinating for me. Um, and my friends were the same way. My friends insisted on coming to every single appointment. And towards the end, I just started to feel like everybody should really do this because you just get so much more attention than when you have a husband, a useless husband who won't get you ice cream. And then after he was born, in what ways was it different from what you expected? Well, oh, that's an interesting question. You know, when when I was pregnant, it was easy to take help. And I did find when he was born, it was much harder for me personally to take help because I felt like I had signed on to be this independent single mother and that I would be failing Javier and failing myself. Uh, if I took help from my parents or I took help from people, you know, as if that would be cheating. But that went away very quickly because you just uh, you form such a close relationship with your child. And when you're a single mom and you have one kid, you become this pod. And so I, I think that was very valuable, actually. I got, I, I was always, we would be lying in bed next to one another when he was a newborn. And I would just think, God, I'm so glad I don't have a husband here interrupting <laughs> this. And actually, a lot of my friends who are married said they felt exactly the same way. And so it was nice for me because I really didn't have a husband to have to send away. There, there just wasn't anyone there. That makes sense. <laughs> I, as a husband, I can't say I would have provided any particularly <laughs> useful services at that point. Um, and at, at what point did you start looking into finding some of the other mothers and, and children who had been produced by that same donor? Well, it was actually I was on vacation with three of my friends who have no children and don't want children. And they were totally fascinated by this idea of a registry, which I had completely forgotten about. And one of them said, Lizzie, you have to sign up on this registry so you can get to know the other kids of the donor. Um, and so I did. And I was just pregnant at the time. And only one mother had signed up. And actually, this mother did a really great job of getting to getting us all together. Um, and so we became friends on Facebook before I even remembered to put myself on the registry that I had had a kid. Um, and there's about uh, seven people right now on the registry, and we're not in contact with all of them. Only some of the people have wanted to be in contact. The registry is a website where you can list yourself as someone who has a child by this donor? Yes, and you, and you have to go through all these hoops to prove that you really own that sperm and you really had a kid you know, by that particular donor. But, you know, once you do, you're on a sort of a page with what I call your co-moms. And then you can add in your email, you can add in the name of the child, the age of the child, and any, any like, information you want to add. And so how many co-moms and, and siblings do you know about at this point? 
Okay, well, two of the other moms are huge stalkers, and they have identified about 12 kids. The target for California Cryobank, uh, which I only learned recently, is actually 30 children per donor. Uh, But our donor, the stalkers have called them, California Cryobank, and asked how many there are, and, and they have said this donor didn't give for very long. So there's, I think there's probably about 15. Uh, and how many like of that. those have you met? Well, so it's three other, it's two other single moms and one couple, and we each have one child. So it's five women and four children. Um, and we've done two family vacations so far, but we we also visit each other when we can. You know, one the couple lives in New Orleans. One of the single moms lives in North Carolina, the other one in New Hampshire, and I'm in Jersey City. So, you know, we do sort of our own visits. And what are the relationships like? What kind of relationship do you have with these other moms? And particularly, how does Javi feel about all of these people? Oh, well, he's only three. So <laughs> all he does is run around screaming and go, where are my friends? Where where can I see my friends? Um, but so it's so interesting so it's it's not a relationship you can predict before you have it, obviously. You have no idea how it's going to feel. Um, and what I think we all found is that we thought of each other as family in a way already. And that it was so interesting to find someone else who's as interested in your child as you are. You know, we we're all so interested and how they look alike. They all have the same eyes. Um, It's very interesting to see. We always take a picture of them lined up from age, and you just see the same eyes going from each, and it's it's kind of neat. Um, And we get to compare them, see how they're alike and how they're not alike. But it's just really nice to get the siblings together. I, you know, I, I do hear some of the, some of my parents and my cousins and my older friends, you know, will say, you know, well, they're not really brother and sister, which is such a bizarre thing to say because you're like, well, they are actually (laughs) brother and sister. But it, it does show the ways in which we only think family, you know, we think genetics matter in some spheres and they don't matter in other spheres. I mean, obviously when people find a quote unquote long lost brother or sister, there's always that big dramatic meeting at the airport, you know, twins who were separated and they didn't know it. But I think something about choosing sperm seems to people like you force the baby to be here and then throwing them in with other people who chose the sperm is like a bridge too far. And it's, you know, and I have heard people say it seems like forcing this family into being. But that's just totally not how it feels. It just feels so great to have this opportunity for them to know each other as they grow up. Do you think as he gets older, Javi will think of them as family? What? How, how do you plan on presenting it to him? Well, you know, I have no idea. And I think the other mothers have no idea. And I think what we share is we just wanted the kids to have an opportunity. You know, we feel wonderful about them getting to know one another. We love getting to know one another. Um, And we're all from very different walks of life. So I think that's interesting for us too. Um, But I I don't know. I mean, maybe they will all grow up and reject each other and be like, ladies, we're crazy. I don't know what you were thinking. And, And if they do, that's completely fine. But Part of the reason I chose an open donor was so Javi could know who his father was if he feels like it. 
And part of the reason I wanted him to know his siblings is that so he'll know them if he feels like it. But what he wants to do is absolutely up to him. You say that that you and the other mothers are from different walks of life. Does it ever come up that because you are from different backgrounds and cultural contexts, that there are differences in the way that you approach parenting? And is that ever a sticking point as you're raising these kids who are related to one another? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we all, I'm sure we all talk about the other mothers behind each other's back because that's just what mothers do in general. So, you know, we mothers just operate in a general you know, fog of critique of other mothers. But no, I mean, I remember one of the mothers, uh, we were hiking and she picked up her daughter who was uh, crying and she said, put a smile on your face. And I was thinking, oh my God, that's totally something I would do. I'm so glad one of the other mothers just did that. And so I do think you notice it like that, but I, I actually think counterintuitively we're a little more open to the fact that we have different parenting styles because it's like, Everybody has different ones from their brother or their mother or their cousin. So, you know, when you know you have a relationship with one another, you're sort of less judgmental about it. What did you guys do in Jersey City over the weekend? Oh, what did we do? So we went out to dinner at Talde with the entire family. And then we went to the Museum of Natural History um, and we saw the whale. And we went and we saw, you know, oh, we went to this diner in Jersey City called the Brownstone Diner, where actually one of the owners is uh, trying to have a baby with her partner. And we've talked about it. So she got to meet Eleanor as well, which was kind of neat. Um, So I basically just gave her a tour of what Javi and I do all the time. And so I think that's what's been great about visiting with the other mothers. We, We really get to see what their daily lives are like and, you know, who the family is in their life. And you don't really get to see that that often with other people. So it's a really special relationship. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Every week, we take a question from a listener like you. Well, I don't know if this listener is like you or not. I don't know you. And we try to answer it. If you have a question that you would like us to try to answer, call and leave us a message at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-7833. Today, we have a call from Lauren. I'm wondering if you can help me decide um, if I should bring my six-year-old daughter to the Women's March in Washington, D.C. on January 21st. I'd love your thoughts. Thanks. Bye. So I brought my son Javier to vote for Hillary Clinton with me. Um, And he's only three, so I knew he wouldn't remember the voting, but I really did want there to be a picture of him there, and I wanted him to know when he was older that he had been there and that he had experienced um, voting for the first women president of the United States, which, of course, did not happen, but that's fine. Um, In what possible way is that fine? (laughs) Sorry. I was trying to be nice to the listeners for for whom it's great. But, uh, and so I also, but more important, um, 
I think it's very important for our children to see us outside of mom land um, and for your daughter uh, not only to see you at the march so that she gets a sense of your beliefs, but also that you're also an adult in the world uh, who can function and, you know, who exists in a larger context and who has beliefs that are important to her. Um, because I think when our kids see that from us, it leaves room for them to do that for themselves. And a lot of the march is about uh, giving our daughters the sense that there's a larger world for them. So I think bringing her would be great. Um, I was also a little bit wondering if you were just concerned about safety. And I was thinking, I mean, there's no place safer than D.C. during inauguration weekend. And she will also just be surrounded by women and surrounded by mothers who will protect her. So I, I do think it's a pretty safe environment. And if I thought Javier would not run off and be climbing the Washington Monument, I would actually I would absolutely bring him to. Yeah, I agree. You should definitely take her. I think a lot of kids right now are picking up a lot of anxiety on the part of their parents. Um, this is a scary time. And certainly my kids are aware that like their parents are suddenly anxious about something that's like of a bigger scope than my kids have ever really thought about uh, in, in any meaningful way. Um, and uh, taking them to a march is a way to show them you know, we're not happy about this election. We're not happy about the outcome of this election. We're worried about things about the future. And this is what we do in response to that fear. We go out in the streets and we protest and we make our voices heard and look at this crowd of hundreds of thousands of people, all of whom are concerned and all of whom are fighting in the same way that we are. Um, and I think that's something that you can give your daughter that hopefully will be useful to her in understanding the situation and in uh, containing those anxieties and, and understanding how to respond to those anxieties in, in a healthy and, and productive way. At the same time, this is going to be a huge event and a huge crowd. And just logistically taking a six-year-old to a massive protest march is like it's not a small endeavor. It's no small undertaking. And you want to be prepared. You want to do it properly. You want to make sure that you, you know, have all the snacks and have stuff to divert her or entertain her and that you can keep track of where she is physically all the time. I think Lizzie makes a good point that she'll be surrounded by concerned women. But at the same time, you know, taking a little kid into a big crowd is always a, the thing where you gotta be you gotta have your a game um i saw a great post about this on medium by a writer named jen sutherland miller that's just an extremely long and exhaustive list of practical advice for bringing children of different ages to protests and marches um i will post it on our facebook page facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting um you should check that out you should be prepared and then you should by all means take her to this march Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. 
Uh, now we're going to be talking to Devorah Heitner, who published an article in The Times about how it's not really parents who set their rules for kids on the Internet. It's kids and their peers who set rules on social media for themselves. And they cover everything from whether to post pictures of fancy hotels to what kind of bikini to use. Devor is the founder of Raising Digital Natives, which provides resources to help kids thrive online. Devor, we're so happy to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So we talk a lot about rules for social media, and and I think probably a lot of parents listening to this, when they think of rules for social media, they think of their own rules that they set for their kids uh, about how much time they can spend, about what kind of supervision the kids need to be under, about who they can connect with on, on Facebook or Instagram and, and in what way. Um, what, what your article suggests is that there's a whole other set of rules that kids are maybe more aware of uh, than, than they are of the rules that we're imposing on them from the top down. And those are the rules that they and their peers are, are generating for themselves. How, where do those rules, where do they come from? How are they transmitted? Often the rules become more vivid to the kids when they're broken. So a lot of times kids wouldn't really articulate a rule until someone somehow violates a norm that they feel like everyone should get. Like, of course you should get that you don't post that kind of picture or you don't say that kind of comment or that kind of thing. And then that's how they'll have a conversation about the rules. So the violation is what makes it really clear. Uh, Can you give us an example? What kinds of rules are they that that kids are, are calling each other out for violating? Absolutely. So I gave the example in the article about the bikini rule where the seventh grade girls that I was speaking with in my focus group said, you shouldn't share a picture of yourself in a two-piece bathing suit unless you're with your family. And then it's okay because then it's just a vacation photo. But if you're not with your family, then it's attempting to look sexual, which for those girls was not okay. And interestingly, I've talked with older kids for whom – looking sexy, looking hot would be totally okay and body positive. So this was just this particular group of girls at that middle school age where they're both trying to seem innocent and nice, but they want to be pretty and sometimes pretty is hot and pretty is sexy. So there's this real interesting challenge of how do you walk that line? How can you be pretty and hot, but also nice and innocent in a society that's totally willing to sexualize the bodies of seventh grade girls, right? And that's actually a really unfair conundrum for girls to be in. So I'm not saying that I think the bikini rule is great or that girls policing each other's sexuality is great. I think there's a lot to be concerned about there, but that's what they, that's how they articulate. So I think we need to start by just being curious about these kids and their rules. Um, Another rule was about that, that I got from many groups of kids have talked to me about this one is you just can't lie about where you are, especially if you're going to post pictures. So if you tell a friend I can't hang because I have too much homework. And then you post pictures later where you're clearly at the mall or at the beach, but you just turn down their invitation to do something different. You're in trouble. And kids, kids find out that rule when they're caught, right? So they now say it's better not to lie. Kids will say you have to say I have plans so that then you're covered if someone later shares a picture of you. And what happens to one of the kids in the first group that you talked to if they post a, a picture of themselves in a bikini and their family is not in it and, and, and they're seen as uh, trying to look sexier than is appropriate or whatever? What, what's the punishment like? How is, how is that violation policed? 
Unfortunately, girls sometimes in that situation will be unkind to one another, or boys sometimes will also talk about girls in ways that can be denigrating or not very uh, not very empowering, not very thoughtful. So, but, but girls participate a lot in this sort of, so it's a, there's a lot of same gender sexuality policing going on at, at that age saying, oh, she's trying too hard or she's a slut or that kind of thing, which is, again, very negative, would not want my kids to use that term to talk about other kids. So I'm not, I'm not saying this is good at all. This, this is very concerning, but it's really un- interesting to understand that kids are still having this double standard about girls not, not, it not being okay for girls to be sexual even while we're simultaneously sexualizing them. It's really good for parents to know that that's still out there and that it comes with this social media, you know, of Instagram, Snapchat, and all of these spaces where kids are spending time and sharing lots of images of themselves comes with this additional stress of having to, again, you want to look pretty and hot, but you don't want to look too pretty or too hot. So girls talk about wanting to call each other, cute, uh, but they don't necessarily call each other sexy because it's a little too much. Um, Do boys face any conundrums? Boys face different conundrums. Boys are definitely more concerned about their appearance at a younger age because of social media. So when back in the old, old days when I was a kid, we thought of maybe boys not really tuning into their appearance as much until maybe later in junior high or even high school and thinking about their appearance in relation to maybe dating and that kind of thing. And now we're seeing boys more aware of their, whether they think of themselves as, as attractive or not, and, and, and also into falling into certain kinds of masculinized, you know, like, am I athletic? Am I a stud? Et cetera. So not every boy is buying into this stuff in middle school, just like not every girl is buying into these bikini questions. But there are kids who are doing, you know, posting pictures and rating. And girls will rate pictures of boys and boys will rate pictures of girls. So it's not a one-way street of objectification. There are definitely more instances that I've seen of girls being rated in that way in terms of how cute they are. But we're seeing some some of that happening with boys or boys not wanting a, to someone to share a picture if they don't think they look attractive or if they don't think they look like their image of themselves of how they, how they want to be perceived. Um, I know this might seem sort of like a silly question, given that these are teenagers on Instagram, but do they ever post, you know, are there ever pictures uh, that are meant to inspire envy or admiration that are not of themselves or places they are or places they've bought, um, you know, things they've bought? What are what are some other things they're actually posting on these sites that they have rules for? Absolutely. So kids do have concerns about seeming too affluent or especially about showing off about material things. So one of the other examples was a girl posting pictures from a very fancy resort that she traveled to and her classmates thought it was very inappropriate of her to post pictures, even though in that community, it was very typical. Many kids had been abroad and been to fancy resorts. And so they were saying like, hey, we've been to places that are really amazing or, you know, this other kid lives in a really amazing house, but they don't post pictures of it. So there, there's a culture, I mean, things like rich kids of Instagram, where people are absolutely bragging about material wealth. And there's also a culture of celebrities doing that, of, of posting, you know, sort of blingy things, right, or fancy cars or all kinds of stuff. But, but most of us, I think, have some distaste for that, or we would teach our kids not to do that. And in a lot of communities, kids are maybe absorbing, I mean, that may be an adult value, but they're translating it in a certain way and saying, hey, that's, that's uncool. We don't, we don't post about that. 
or there's a way to do it, right? If you're just taking a picture of your family, you know, at the beach and it happens to be a really exclusive beach, that might be okay. But just to take a picture and be like, look, we got to go to this amazing place would, would be less acceptable. I was also sort of interested um, about girls in different circumstances, girls who aren't from affluent backgrounds, you know, what do you find girls, you know, in Wyoming from a town of 300 posting or a girl, you know, who's in the Bronx and is on the subway for a few hours a day? Um, you know, do you have a, um, a beat on what those girls are doing on Instagram? A lot of girls are posting a lot of selfies, whether they're in the Bronx or, you know, living in rural Wyoming or living in, you know, a suburb of Minneapolis. They might be posting pictures of themselves, their friends. Instagram and Snapchat especially are places to share, you know, social experiences, parties, sometimes images that might mean something to a certain number of your followers. So maybe if you skipped a class and you saw something really amazing with your three friends, you would post a picture of that or a picture from Starbucks where you went when you skipped class or something that you walked by. And only those people would understand the deeper meaning in the image. Other people would just see maybe a cool image with a filter or wonder why you posted that image. So there's a way that kids are also trying to navigate their public versus private. Kids will have private Instagram accounts um, or fake Instagram accounts that they'll use for different, different purposes because it's challenging growing up in such a public time and kids are trying to navigate one level of public with their parents, another with their classmates, and maybe another with a group of people who, if they have following outside of who the people they actually know, they're also speaking to those people. So that's their like admiring public. And, and kids have these kind of mini celebrity experiences when they have people they don't know following them. It can feel really exciting. Do, how do they get condemned? Do people do it, you know, do kids do it in the comments? Do they do it behind their backs in chat? Do they do it, you know, IRL? How do, how do kids know that they've messed up? Sometimes just no comment at all is the worst. And I think we've all had that experience like on Facebook, for which is what old people are using still, um, is like us, you know, is if we post something on Facebook and maybe nobody likes it and you think, did nobody see it? What's going on with my algorithm? Am I being hidden by all my friends because they've been posting too much? So kids have similar experiences. If, and for them, it might be they have 500 followers and if they only get 10 likes, they might actually take a picture down. If they don't get a certain number of responses in a certain amount of time, that would be concerning for some for some kids. Other kids will actually talk smack or even make a negative comment. So that that's a more aggressive thing to do, to actually comment and say, wow, you think you look so hot in that picture, or I can't believe you posted that. Um, another way would be if you just speak about them negatively, but you don't say anything. Like, I can't believe that person posted that, but you just say it verbally to someone at the lunch table. Um, you could block or unfriend. There are all different ways that kids will police each other, but mostly it's uh, it's less it's less direct. Um, I haven't seen as many examples of girls posting really mean comments on one another, uh, but it does happen. And then sometimes that also becomes a spectator sport. If you see kids having a big friendship eruption right before your eyes, then even if you're, say, less of an alpha kid and you're not as involved, <laughs> you might find that a really fascinating spectacle to watch. Uh, you're a mother, I think. Are, do you have children who are old enough to, to be on social media and to be dealing with these questions? I do not. My seven-year-old is definitely not on social, but I'm meeting seven-year-olds who are on Musical.ly, so that's really interesting, right? So I know there are kids on social that young, but it's, for most of them, not such a great idea. 
<laughs> Do you have a, a, a sense of, well, this is the age he's going to reach when, when I'm going to let him get an account, and this is the site that he's going to have an account on at that time? It's going to be more likely that my kids' first social experiences that are mediated are going to be through a game. And a lot of boys, especially, and, and many girls, have social experiences via a game server, you know, by 9 or 10. So I think it's more likely that he'll be playing Minecraft on a server with friends before he's on social. But that's still a social experience where kids can have conflict, where kids can decide how much to reveal, if they, they have to decide if they're going to use their real name even. So I think all of those questions come up in gaming spaces too. Uh, for me, social media, I mean, we'll see. Musically certainly attracts a younger set. We'll see what kinds of social media, like Club Penguin and all the like really little kids social media we avoid. <laughs> But there are those kind of moderated spaces for little kids and that, you know, really kind of teach kids to enjoy the happy experience of the in-app purchase, for example. And we're trying to cultivate a healthy skepticism. So our son thinks in-app purchases are uh, not not great. And he, he understands, like, they're trying to take my money. <laughs> so that's good. Well, you've been teaching him well, it sounds like. Yeah, we want to cultivate that skepticism. But he also has veto power on my social media, and that's a great training wheels for parents to offer kids. To, he can say no to me sharing him on Facebook or Instagram. And I think that's a really important, empowering opportunity for kids to, to say, I don't want to be shared. Because then when his friends are taking pictures all the time, and every day is picture day, right, for these kids, their friends are constantly photographing one another. It's good for them to be able to say, hey, it's, I don't want you to share that. You just took a unflattering picture up my nose or I was sleeping. Why did you take that? Right. So it's good for kids to feel they can say no, because if we take pictures of them when they're sleeping and drooling, cause we think it's cute and they're like, heck no, that's not cute. It's good for us to respond to that because otherwise we're conditioning them to accept it. Hmm. So none of those butt pictures that all our parents took of us when we were little. Not to share on social. I think to take it out when they bring their future spouse over is totally okay. Uh, but to share on social when they're young and vulnerable, and especially when they're in middle school, I think is, is really unfair. I'm grateful that the only pictures of me from that age are safely in my parents' attic in Yonkers and, you know, the horrible Laura Ashley dress that I wore to my bat mitzvah. That doesn't need to be on social media. I think someone else put my sad Laura Ashley bat mitzvah dress on social media already. So oh, <laughs> it's too late for you. And we'll have that yeah. up on our Facebook page this afternoon. <laughs> Uh, Deborah Heitner, thank you so much for being with us. This has been really helpful. Thank you so much. And listeners, please check out Devorah's book, which just came out. It's called ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. Okay, let's move on to recommendations. Lizzie, what do you recommend to our listeners? So I'm going to recommend a book that has already gotten a lot of attention, but I'm going to kick it some more attention. And it's called At the Same Time Around the World. It's by Clotilde Perrin. So what the concept, the concept of the book is that each time zone experiences a different time of day at the same moment, which, of course, we intellectually know, but I think we kind of forget except on New Year's Eve. And we might even forget it on New Year's Eve. And so this book starts in the early morning in Dakar, and it ends at sunrise in the middle of the ocean. And in between, we go to Uzbekistan and Dubai and Tokyo. And we meet all the kids experiencing this same moment. And what I love is that Param makes sure we have this great diversity of experience. You know, in some cases, it's really appropriate. Like the girl in Dubai is watching construction go up. 
But, you know, in Hanoi, the boy is just napping. Um, So it's this really accurate snapshot of the world in that sense. Um, It also has a map at the back with a key to the illustrations, um, which, of course, Javi ripped. And he got a little traumatized by ripping it. And I told him everything was okay, and everyone makes mistakes. Uh, But it's great for parents because, honestly, I was a little hazy on where Dubai and New Caledonia were at the time. Um, And the illustrations are also wonderful Since she lists different reasons why kids are doing everything, you know, there's a girl in Nuke, Greenland, who's actually being kept awake by the Northern Lights. And so Javi became very interested in Northern Lights. We started watching them on YouTube. And the book has all sorts of openings for kids like that. So I've really loved it. And we've been reading it every night. And I think it's just one of the best books for kids that we've ever seen. Sounds great. Yeah, it's wonderful. (laughs) I want to recommend Sudoku. I just started doing Sudoku with my six-year-old, and I had thought Sudoku would be too hard for a six-year-old because sometimes Sudoku is pretty hard for me. But it turns out there is also really easy Sudoku, and you can start with Sudoku that's only like six across or whatever that goes from one through six. And that fills in many of the numbers for you. And it's super fun and satisfying for her because she, like, figures out what the number is and then she can get another number. And you can see the sort of delight as each answer leads to another answer. And then she finishes it and she feels very, very proud. And then right away she wants to do another one. And at first I had to sort of walk her through a couple of them and show her how, you know, you use process of elimination and, okay, where are the sixes and whatever. Um and now she can basically do them by herself at a certain level. And it, if she's in the mood, then it can occupy her for a, a good long time. And I don't know if it's actually building any kind of logical thinking or mathematical skill or ability at all. Um, but it is a fun activity and way to pass the time either with or next to a six-year-old. I've never done Sudoku. I don't even know what it is. Oh, is it's, it is it numerical? Yeah, or sort of alphabetical. Um, Sudoku is a Japanese number puzzle game in which there's a grid and each row and each column contains all of the numbers from one through six or one through nine and they give you some of the numbers and you have to figure out where the other numbers are. Um, it's you, you see it in newspapers a lot, but um, you can also get books of them and, and airport bookstores often have good ones for kids. Okay, that's our show. Remember, please like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash fighting, and email us at momanddad at slate.com. Also, Allison doesn't usually say this, maybe because it seems too thirsty, but I, for one, have no qualms about urging you to review our show on iTunes, unless you dislike our show, in which case definitely do not review it on iTunes. But if you like it or feel at all warmly towards it uh, or us, go to iTunes give us a review. Mom and Dad are Fighting is part of the Panoply Network. You can see our full roster of shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show is produced by Zach Dinerstein. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thanks to our guest, Devorah Heitner, and special thanks to Lizzie Skernick for co-hosting. Thank you. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. I'm with everybody, but I'm still
What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.